In the name of Jesus, Amen. On numerous occasions, angels have appeared to interrupt events. When the wicked prophet Balaam was riding his donkey toward the Israelite camp, intending to pronounce a curse upon them, the angel of the Lord appeared in the road. But he was visible only to the donkey, so that she turned aside and made Balaam, her rider, angry. And this happened repeatedly. And each time, Balaam beat his donkey until finally the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, which said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And then God allowed Balaam to see the angel of the Lord, and he realized that his donkey had in fact protected him from destruction. But that construction, the angel of the Lord, has interesting features in the Old Testament. Sometimes that phrase, the angel of the Lord, means exactly what it sounds like in English, an angel who serves the Lord. But frequently the term means something more. Remember that angel means messenger. In many cases this refers to a very specific messenger the same messenger that St. John in his gospel calls the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is not an angel the way we think of angels, but the Son of God does serve as a messenger. This angel of the Lord is the Son of God before his incarnation, before he became a human being. When God speaks, it is usually through the second person, His Son. And that's a very good thing, because Jesus said after He took on human flesh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. By dealing with us through His Son, God made it work out that His life replaces our death. We see how he does this with Abraham. God provides a substitute. To test him, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son as a burnt offering. Remember that this was the boy through whom God had promised, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Through Isaac, God had promised to create a great nation and through his descendant to bless all nations. The Savior promised to all mankind who would crush Satan's head was promised to be a descendant of Isaac. But now God asked Abraham to sacrifice this one and only son who is still just a boy. The letter to the Hebrews tells us that he reasoned that God also had the ability to raise him from the dead. That was Abraham's faith. He knew God's promises would not fail, so he intended to follow through on God's command. Now, sometimes this episode in the Old Testament is considered cruel. How could God ask Abraham to kill his son? How could Abraham obey such a command? Certainly a reasonable faith has a line that it will not cross. And killing a child is across that line. A God who asks for such cruelty can't be a God worth our faith, can he? 
Before I go any further, I should tell you outright that if you hear God telling you to kill anyone, your child, your neighbor, or anyone, you can actually be confident that that is contrary to God's command, and that's not God speaking to you now. How do I know that? Well, besides the general commandment, you shall not commit murder, Jesus shows concern for the welfare of children, especially spiritually, but physically too, saying, Amen, I tell you, unless you are turned and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives a little child like this one in my name receives me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. God is not going to call any of us to kill a child. But the case was somewhat different for Abraham. God had been speaking to him directly, and all of his promises had become true despite Abraham's many doubts. And now God asked this one more thing from him. Now take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains there, the one to which I direct you. And was it that Abraham's doubts had all been removed and now he could trust more easily? Did he think that this sacrifice would have some part to play in God's plan to make him a great nation? Well, we aren't given insights into Abraham's mind or soul except to know that he had faith, and that faith was being tested. I'm not always too sure that test is the perfect English word to talk about how faith is treated in such cases. We think of a test as a checklist, and we're checking down the list to see if the quality of a thing measures up to the standard. But God knows how much or how little faith a person has anyway. I don't know what better word we can use besides test, but think of it differently. Think of it like a sword being tested by a hammer, shaped and formed and heated and beaten to make it grow stronger. St. Peter, using a similar Greek word, says, Dear friends, do not be surprised by the fiery trial that is happening among you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, rejoice whenever you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Such testing like this, it's not a stretch to say, is a kind of suffering. Suffering with the aim of strengthening faith. In some ways, faith is like a muscle, and it has to be exercised or else it will weaken, atrophy, and disappear. But how does a person exercise a passive thing like faith? Faith is that which simply receives salvation. We don't do anything for salvation. It's given freely and received by faith, which itself isn't something that we come up with. It's created by God. So how can such a thing as that be exercised. Suffering alone is not faith's exercise regimen. It's suffering that's connected to Christ. And we encounter Christ through his word and his sacraments, things which constitute worship. That confluence of worship and suffering is where faith is strengthened. Luther calls this tentatio or anfectum in Latin and in German. 
For Abraham, it was the thought of losing his son, his only son whom he loved, Isaac, while worshiping God atop a mountain. And that son, like a child, asked a question like a child. Here are the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? His father answered, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Did Abraham know how true that statement was and how prophetic? Perhaps he spoke intentionally the ironic and sad truth that God had already provided that lamb, that miraculous son of Abraham's old age, Isaac. So was this piety on Abraham's part, recognizing that all that he had was a gift from God, recognizing that he had received Isaac from God and God would take Isaac back when God willed to take him back? But what Abraham certainly did not know at this point was that God would indeed provide the lamb for a burnt offering as a substitute for Isaac. When Abraham was just about to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord appeared and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked around and saw that behind him there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God's substitution is a rich gift. Not only does Abraham get to keep his son, that precious gift of God, but he also has a stronger faith as well as a greater understanding of God's providence. He named that mountain, the Lord will provide. Apparently there was a saying among the Hebrew-speaking people that went, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And mountains have been places where God has appeared to his people and given his gifts, like Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given, or Mount Carmel where Jesus preached his sermon on the mount, and the Mount of Transfiguration, and Mount Zion. And in fact, it was on a mountain many centuries later that God did provide another substitute but he didn't provide just any old lamb. God offers his own son. There's another way that can be translated. The Lord will provide. And it's perhaps a simpler translation. The Lord will see. And that saying, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, might be more simply translated, on the mountain of the Lord he will be seen. Remember what I said earlier, the angel of the Lord is that son of God before he became man. The common term is the pre-incarnate Christ, that is, Christ before his incarnation. And it is significant that the son of God is seen on this mountain to provide the substitute for Isaac, because centuries later on a mountain he would be seen and would offer himself as a substitute for all mankind on the altar of the cross. You see how God spoke about Isaac. He called him your son, your only son whom you love. Your son, your only son. It's reminiscent of how God would say of Jesus, This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. How Jesus described himself as his only begotten son. The trial of Abraham, the suffering that he was enduring, was an echo of the suffering that God himself would undergo for him and for all his descendants. And can't that be said for the suffering of all Christians 
every suffering that we undergo, every pain we feel because of our connection to Christ. Isn't that why we call these things crosses? Abraham bore his cross, and so did his son Isaac, on whom his father laid the wood so that he would carry it up the mountain. You have your crosses, and I have mine, and every Christian has his cross to bear. But that's not a thing that causes a division between us, nothing that separates us. This is a means of our unity, and it gives us cause to rejoice whenever you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Some theologians at the time of the Reformation even considered counting troubles among the sacraments, because troubles are signs to which God has added promises. Now, I wouldn't suggest that we actually call our crosses sacraments, because that would confuse the issue, but instead consider the troubles that you have, the tests of your faith, and think about how through those things you are more closely united to Christ. When Jesus stepped into our place, he took our sin and the punishment for sin onto himself. And at the same time, he gave us his righteousness and the reward for his righteousness. And this is received by each one of you by faith. In fact, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Indeed, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one and the same in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. By the faith God has given you, you have become sons and daughters of God. St. Athanasius, the church father for whom the Athanasian Creed is named, and who had a hand in writing the Nicene Creed, he once said, He became what we are, that we might become what he is. That angel of the Lord, that eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father from eternity, performed the greatest work in history when he took on human flesh. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son to be born of a woman, so that he would be born under the law in order to redeem those under the law, so that we would be adopted as sons. The Son of God became Son of Man, so that all sons of men might become sons of God. In this nexus of contact and exchange, we find ourselves united to Christ. Those sufferings, trials, tests, troubles, or crosses that we undergo in life are all designed to solidify this fact of our unity for us. Stained glass windows and other church art have specific purposes. They're designed to be looked at. The really good stuff will teach you something when you look at it, giving you a reason to study it about as intensely as you would study the Word of God itself. And that's because these artistic depictions were originally meant to teach the illiterate the Bible. In conjunction with the teaching of the Word in church, people who couldn't read could look at the art, see the reality behind the depictions, and be strengthened in faith. Suffering serves a very similar purpose and is its own kind of art. In conjunction with the Word of God, you can feel the pain, the agony of body or spirit, and see the reality of Christ behind it all and be strengthened in faith. This is why Jesus took up our flesh, too. 
We're physical flesh beings, and we have senses. We could not climb up into heaven to take our Savior and pull him down, so instead he came into our reality, into our flesh, and he dwelled among us. And by this, he could be with us. He could take our death and replace it with his life. As he interrupted the knife of Abraham over Isaac, by his death on the cross, he interrupted the, ni- the knife of eternal death as it loomed over our souls. He proved that that was done by rising from the dead after his death. By that resurrection, his voice carries the promise of your resurrection. His word now speaks life to you. That life is yours by faith. Faith itself, which is given to you by that word of promise. The angel of the Lord, your Savior Jesus Christ, prepared his people through the Old Testament until he would come in the flesh. And he has now come in the flesh. He's accomplished his work. And he causes you to be joined to himself and to all of his people through his word and by faith. And as a result of all of this, you have life. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.